couple classes here as we come down to the end. Um, homework number four is due today, so if you have a copy, you can turn it in um, on your way out. If you're going to submit it up on D2L, do that anytime before 6 o'clock tomorrow. Don't be late on it because I'm going to release the answers at 6 o'clock, so after that you won't be able to submit it for credit. So that way you'll have the answers available for you for homework four to study uh, for the exam coming up next time. So again, make sure you get it in well before 6 o'clock. Don't push it right up there because when it turns 6 o'clock, D2L will lock out the Dropbox. You won't be able to submit that. So get that one in today. Um, homework 5 is due next week. And if you recall, I only do, I grade your four highest homeworks. So if you did the first ones, you don't have to worry about this one. You don't have to do it if you're happy with your grades on the first four and I will do my best to have the grades for number four back to you by next week, the beginning of the week so you know. So you don't necessarily have to do it although I still recommend looking through the questions thinking that you've got some idea of them because it is material that will come up on the final. So I would not ignore it completely but I would, but if you're busy and you've got lots of other assignments and projects coming due like our solar project and other classes. Uh, then it's one that if you've done the first four, you can just ignore it, take a look at those over the weekend as you're prepping for the final exam. So otherwise, if you've missed one, it's your chance to make up and drop that zero that you've got from homework one or two or three or four if you missed one of those. So whichever is of course up to you, but one of them does get dropped, so if you've done really well on the first four, there's no reason that you have to rush and try to stress and get that in. But do look at those. Do take a look at the questions. Um, otherwise, we have the exam next time and the review quizzes, which are due uh, right before the exam starts. Those are all up there. I did e email before the break to let you know that they were all up there. As are now, all of the key point sheets are up on D2L, so you can get those for chapters 23 through 27. And as with previous exams, you can print those out, write your notes on them, and use those during the exam. No other books, no other notes, nothing else, but those sheets for those chapters 23 through 27, you can use. Those are all up on D2L in those units right now. So you can get those and have those for next time if you choose to use them. Uh, solar project is due in a week. We will be going over some of that material today. I will go over how to do the calculations and how to set up the graphs. And next time you'll be doing that. There was no good way to really work it out with the limited amount of time left um, to make this work out properly and the snow day kind of threw us off too because that pushed us a little bit uh, behind losing uh, part of a lecture lecture class there. So what I'll do is I'll stop, I'll save the last half hour or so to go over how you do the solar project, how you get the calculations and the graphs done. And then before you leave on Thursday, I want to see your calculations and graphs for the set of data that I'm going to give you. That's your lab, that's, that's your lab after the uh, exam. So, but I want to explain it today because it's kind of hard. I can't just stop the exam and then start lecturing. There'll be no time by the time people are finishing up and everything. Plus the fact that no, we don't all finish at the same time. So the only way I can kind of do it is this way. Um, there are up on D2L in lesson 13, there are videos that also explain it. 
do the same thing. Uh, I believe, if I recall, the videos are from a spring semester when I made them. So the numbers that I show you won't match, but the calculation is exactly the same. How you go about doing it, it's just that the numbers won't match up. So if you wanted to review it in between or afterwards while you're working on the uh, project over the weekend, then you have that, you have that option. Lesson 13. You'll see that. You'll see there's videos and the data and the stuff that I'm going to give you today. So do take a look at that. If you want to go and review it, I'm going to do the same lecture. It's essentially what I'm going to give you right now. But sometimes it's easier to go back and do it again where you can pause and rewind and say, wait, what did you do there? So, But then I will be checking them on Thursday. The whole idea is that I want to check them off on Thursday and tell you that the data that I'm giving you, your calculations are perfect. Check them off. You don't have to worry about that. The graphs with my data on them are perfect. Everything's labeled properly and everything. So I can tell you that when you're submitting, at least that portion of it is right. So you're not stressing over calculations. Uh, you know, the night of December 3rd, you're not sitting there stressing over getting the calculations and the graphs right. All you're worrying about is the write-up portion. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when I, uh, after I break from the lecture section. So. Otherwise, are there other questions other than Solar Project that I'll say I'll come back to? All right. Well, our beautiful picture for today doesn't look like much. I don't know if anyone saw this yesterday. Yeah, the InSight lander. Um, I was actually watching the landing. It was right before 3 o'clock our time. Actually, I was sitting in the parking lot waiting to pick up my daughter from work. She got off at 3, so I actually got to see. And when this picture came up, you could see all the cheering that, ever, that went off in the mission control uh, from it. It, doesn't, it looks kind of hor- looks like a horrible image. Just you know, all, this, all these specks and spots on it. But this is actually the image, the first image sent back by the InSight lander, which landed yesterday afternoon. So, you know, it's one of those classes, one of those classes. You get, you get stuff that's right up to date because this just happened. This has just landed here. You know, no one else, no other class that I've ever taught has gotten to hear about InSight landing on Mars. And the reason for all of that, all of those specs, all of those specs are dust from Mars from when the, when the thing landed. There's still a dust cover on it. It had not, it had just landed. It hadn't ejected, kicked off the little dust cap on it. So they wanted to make sure everything was set first and took the first image out there. You can actually see the horizon of Mars off in the distance here. So you can see the horizon. So you've got the sky up here and then the land down here. There are a couple other, what did they highlight? Here we go. Uh, One of the foot pads of the lander is actually over there. Some of the bolts that were kicked off are over. You can't really see them very well here, but they're there. Most of what you see here, you can see some rocks. And if you look at it in a little bit higher resolution, there's some rocks. But all of these dark splotches are just dust. And once that lens cap gets kicked off, then we'll get much nicer images of stuff that we're used to getting. But this was still, you know, you could just see the cheering going on in the mission control when this came down. They knew that InSight had landed safely and was going to be able to uh, study Mars over the coming years, probably. Um, InSight is actually going to study the interior of Mars. It's not going to dig down, but it's going to use uh, like seismographs to study Mars quakes to study the interior. We've looked at the atmosphere, we've looked at the surface a lot, but now we want to learn what the interior is like uh, to hopefully tell us a little more about Mars and try to understand Mars better so that we can understand, of course, our own Earth better. Um, so that's, again, some things that we'll be seeing, you'll probably be seeing over the coming months from InSight. When these things land, 
It's essentially, sometimes they call they called it with curiosity the seven minutes of terror because you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's going 20,000 20, kilometers per hour, and it has to stop to zero in seven minutes. Yeah, and, it ha and you can't because you can't hit hard, right? Otherwise, the mission is over immediately. But you also don't know about it because it takes several minutes from 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 Mars for the light for the uh, light the radio signals to get from Mars. So from the time it starts its descent, okay, it signals that it starts its descent. By the time we got that signal, it's already either landed or hasn't landed. We don't know it yet, but it's already done. So it's kind of this. Well, it's already either landed or hasn't. We've got to wait for that signal to get to us from Mars. So, and the things that they have to do with this, um, if I have time one of the days, if we have time like the last day, I can show you there's a little video for seven minutes of terror, or you can take a look it up. It's for the Curiosity rover. All the things they had to do and that had to go right to get it to land properly, between parachutes and retro rockets and kicking off this cover and that cover just as it was trying to decelerate from a really high speed through the Martian atmosphere. So again, we'll learn a lot more from Insight again over the coming months and years, hopefully. Questions? Alrighty. Well, as I recall, I was halfway through chapter 27. I had just finished up the summary from the last part, is what I had done, and I was ready to finish up chapter 27, which is the last part that will be on the exam. So I'm going to go start do 27 and then get through at least part of chapter 28 uh, to start on that, and then we'll finish up chapters 28 and 29 next next week. Oh, uh, let's see, slideshow. Begin. <sighs> Didn't want to do that. Just going to zip through it there. Boom. All right. So we talked about active galaxies. So I start talking about active galaxies, which are more energetic, giving off more energy and giving off a different type of energy than a normal galaxy, an ordinary galaxy. And we sometimes call these, because all of that energy is coming from the nucleus, they're sometimes called AGNs or active galactic nuclei. So we sometimes use that abbreviation referring to the entire active galaxy, but really what we're seeing when we're looking at them is the nucleus, that supermassive black hole at the center, and we'll be looking at some evidence for that coming up. The thing that we find is that when we look at these properties, we want to try to understand them. You know, what can be powering something that makes it brighter than an entire galaxy? That's how luminous these things are. So just the nucleus of these distant galaxies outshines the rest of the galaxy completely. They're tiny. They're, si they're very small. The energy source has to be about the size of our solar system or a little bit bigger but not very, uh, not large by any sense. So not things that stretch across you know, many light years, but just a very, very small, compact area that is producing this energy. We find that they emit jets of material in very narrow beams at speeds close to the speed of light. Again, it takes a lot of power, a lot of energy to be able to accelerate particles up to that high of a speed. Um, the only thing, this much energy, if we're getting this much energy from such a small region, it has to be a much more powerful energy source than just nuclear fusion. Right, nuclear fusion works for the stars, gives, gives lots of energy, 
converts about 0.7% of the mass to energy using Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared. So you're converting a lot of mass, I mean a small amount of mass to energy and you're able to power the stars. You could not do that. Even on a massive scale, that would not come close to the energies that we need. That little 0.7% that can power a star like our sun or any other star that we see is much too small. We need something much more powerful that can convert 10, 20% of the mass into energy. We also find that quasars were more common in the early history of the universe. These active galaxies and quasars are much more common as we look back. And remember, when we look out in space, we look back in time. So we see things as they were long ago. If we look at a, ga a galaxy that's 10 billion light years away, we see it not as it is now. We don't know what it looks like now. We've got to wait 10 billion years for that light to get here. But we see it as it was 10 billion years ago. So we can see things as they were early in the history of the universe. And the quasars that we see, the active galaxies that we see, were all back in the very early history of the universe. That's when we see them. So what is some of the evidence, now I've said some things here, but what is some of the actual evidence that we have that this would has to be a supermassive black hole? Well, one example is shown here. The first of all, I should say indirect evidence, let me do this first. Um, you got a lot of mass in a small volume. Could you fit millions of stars in the solar system? Well, yeah, but they'd be about touching. And you could put star and then star next to it, and what would happen to them, right? They're not going to be able to move. They're going to collide together and form into a giant black hole. So you really cannot get any kind of mass, that, si that amount of mass, into such a small volume without it collapsing into a black hole anyway. We also see short period variations in brightness. And I believe we looked at last time that you can't, something can't vary in brightness faster than light can travel across it. So if something is one light day in size, which would be outer limits of our solar system, you couldn't vary in brightness faster than one day because it takes light time to travel across the entire thing. So this part gets brighter, but we don't know, we don't know about this side for another day. So these things that vary in brightness with weeks or months have to be things that are much smaller than the distances to the nearest stars. So they limit the, the size. The faster the variations we see, the smaller the object has to be. So how can we determine the mass? Well, we can actually look at orbits of stars. So this again, this will also limit the mass as well. The size, because if you look at some of these orbits, they come down very, very close. If it was something big, they'd hit it. So if this thing were, if there were a giant object this big here, when that orbit came down, this thing would come down and it wouldn't come back out, because it would have crashed into something. So it has to be something incredibly small. And we can then use Kepler's third law to determine the mass. If we look at the orbits of these stars and figure out the period, how long does it take to orbit? Figure out the semi-major axis, how, what the average distance is between the star and the center. Then we can use that to calculate the mass. And when we look at a number of stars like this, we find for our Milky Way, it's about a little over four million solar masses. So four million solar masses compressed you know, down to about the orbit of Neptune. 
30, light year, 30, 30 astronomical units on this side, 30 on that side. It's about 60 astronomical units across. There's just no way you could fit 4.1 million stars in there without them all colliding and coalescing into a black hole anyway. So if you did put them there, eventually they would, quickly they would become a black hole and that would be what we would still see there. So looking at the orbit, studying how fast things are orbiting near the center of the galaxy is one way to measure that mass. We can also look at it for other galaxies. This is the active galaxy. This is a nearby active galaxy, not one of the, not a quasar, but just a, still a little bit active. And this is called M87. It's the big elliptical galaxy that's in the constellation of Virgo. And if we look and take a spectrum near the center, we get a red shift on one side over here. We get a blue shift on this side over here. That allows us to determine the mass. We're again, we're measuring the velocities. The velocities allow us to determine the orbits. So if we determine the orbit of that gas, how fast that gas is moving, allows us to me measure that this is not, and I didn't give you the number here, not four million solar masses, but probably closer to a billion solar masses. A lot of mass down there compacted into almost no space. Now how can we do this? So how can we get energy? This is some of the evidence that, you know, what else could possibly be in a space that small? There's nothing else that we understand that could be in a space as small as that. So how can we produce energy? Well, if you recall, you can't get energy from a black hole inside itself. We know nothing can escape from a black hole if you cross its event horizon. Once you cross, cross the event horizon, you could have millions of supernovae going off inside and you'd never know about it. That information, that energy, that light cannot get outside of the black hole. So once something crosses that inner event horizon, you're done. You can't know anything about it. However, you can learn about things outside the black hole. Because as material spirals into the black hole, Maybe a star, one of those stars eventually passes too close and the tidal forces will rip it apart. So it'll start to get pulled apart and material will spiral into the black hole. That's where all the energy is being produced. So all of the energy is being produced there. It comes in, it spirals in, it moves faster and faster and faster and faster. All those particles rubbing against each other produces a lot of friction, heat, and that heats the things to hundreds of thousands to millions of degrees or more as they're accelerated to very high speeds. And it, because it goes down in there, that heat is then converting a lot of the mass to energy. Not just that less than 1% for nuclear fusion, but 10% on the conservative side, it can go up to 20 or 25 or even 30% depending on the black hole and the exact conditions. That's a lot more energy. For every little bit of matter being converted, even here, that's more than 10 times the amount of energy you get for a nuclear reaction in the sun. So 10 times for the same amount of mass. So you're producing a lot more energy and that allows it to be so energetic. That's what Purdue gives us all of this energy is that we've got a much higher conversion of mass to energy. The only way you could do better is if you had mat matter and antimatter, combine those together, then you'd be up at 100%. Take matter and antimatter, combine them together, 
they annihilate into pure energy. That would be a hundred percent conversion. That would be even more efficient than what a black hole can do. But that would be the only way to get any more energy out of this that we know of. So it's not the black hole itself that is giving the energy, it's the material spiraling into the black hole. Again, once it crosses that event horizon, we know nothing else about it. Now we looked at the radio jets and this is how we believe they are formed. How can we get those jets coming out? And we show them in here, a jet going this way and a jet going that way. Well, they're actually kind of confined by the material. So as you have a dense disk around it, depending on how thick that disk is, here a very thin disk, the jet tends to spread out. When the very thin disk, very thick disk here, the jet tends to get more collimated, go straight out. You get a big pressure coming here from this material that is spiraling into the black hole. These, remember this material in this little disk isn't just sitting there. It's spiraling around at a good fraction of the speed of light producing a lot of heat, a lot of energy. So as it does, it's producing a lot of pressure and it pushes that material and confines that jet. And then since you have all this material here, in energy trying to escape from here before it crosses the event horizon, only has two places to go. It can go up or it can go down. It can't go out this way because there's an intense pressure pushing inward from all of that material. And when we look at active galaxies like M87, giant elliptical galaxy, we see jets like this. So the central core would be down here. The elliptical galaxy actually extends way out over this. And the jet of material going out from one side is here. There'd also be another jet going out the other side. But we see lots of these. The jets are very, very common in these uh, active galaxies. We also see them in star formation and things as well on a much, much smaller scale. So if we want to study the early universe, remember, and I mentioned this just previously, as we look out at the universe, we are actually looking back in time. So, as I said, a quasar 10 billion light years away is not seen as it looks like right now. We don't know what that quasar looks like right now. If it's 10 billion light years away, it's going to take another 10 billion years for it to get here. And by that time, you know, we're all long gone. Not even, that's not even close, but the Earth is gone, the Sun is gone. Sun only lives 5 billion more years, so we won't even be around when the light from that quasar that's leaving it right now gets here. Our solar system will not even be around. So what does it look like today? We don't know. But we can, because of light travel, we can see how things have changed over time. When we look further back, we see things as they were 10 billion years ago, 11 billion years ago. As we look closer, we can see things as they were 7 or 8 or 5 billion years ago. And what we can do is measure the number of quasars at each distance. And that's what's kind of shown here. You know, we get out to today. We go backwards with the quasars and they peaked significantly. You know, relative number of quasars here is down to almost nothing. Here it was 10,000 times more back in the very early history when it peaked here at a couple billion years right after the Big Bang. So the number of quasars has declined. But if their energy source is a black hole, the black hole can't go away. It's still there. So the black holes have not gone. They're still around. They're just dormant. 
So when we look at these supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies, they are the engines that powered the quasars. When we see the ones nearby, those are the engines that powered quasars billions of years ago. They're just not being fed anymore. If you leave the black hole sitting there all by itself, and it's not accreting any material, no material going into it, it's just going to sit there. It's not, remember, black hole can't give off any energy by itself. So it's just stuck. So that's why this number dropped off. It's not that the sources, the black holes disappeared. It's that the actual amount of feeding that went on to these black holes has decreased. So there's hardly any now. You could, and there are active galaxies now, if they get fed enough, they won't get up to quasar levels, but they will get significantly more active. So they're still around. And when we look at things like M87, this black hole at the center of our galaxy is rather tiny, rather puny to be a quasar. So probably not the one at ours, but some of these much larger ones could have actually been powered quasars in the distant past. We're just seeing them now as they're dormant. So what is the source of fuel? Well, there's two things that can fuel these uh, quasars. One, you can get occasionally, and this still happens now for our galaxy, for other nearby galaxies. You can get a star or gas cloud that happens to pass by. So you have a star here getting too close and getting ripped apart by the tidal forces. You can imagine what those tidal forces are like if they can tear a whole star apart. I mean, that's, that's not tides deforming the Earth a little bit and pulling the water a few meters in either direction. That is taking something like the sun and going from this to this blob to just a bunch of gas, actually ripping the entire thing apart. That's how strong the tidal forces are. Remember the spaghettification we talked about? As you get close enough to a black hole, those tidal forces will get strong. And that would provide energy. So throwing a star in there every once in a while will give some energy. And that happens in our galaxy. That happens in other galaxies. That is not sufficient to power a quasar. That would not give enough fuel. You would need lots and lots of material spiraling into that black hole to get the amount of energy that we see in a quasar. The way that would have happened is through collisions, galaxies colliding. In that case, instead of giving the black hole just a star or star, a star here or there every decade, every 100 years or so, you're giving it a lot more material. So you could be giving it you know, hundreds, thousands of solar masses could be going into it. Think of that as hundreds or thousands of stars that are getting ripped apart altogether. And that would provide more energy for it. That would be, that would be how the black holes were uh, being fed and how we see quasars in the distant past. So what that means is that the collisions were much more frequent in the past when things were when the universe was smaller, right? it's expanding, so it must have been in the past. It must have been smaller. Galaxies were closer together. They were colliding a lot more. Now as we spread out, galaxies still collide, but not with the frequency that they did long ago. When we look in the, off in the distance at a number of galaxies, we see all sorts of, these are all very, very distant galaxies. We see a lot of collisions. So about 5% of galaxies now are colliding. In the distant past, it was a lot more. And galaxies were constantly colliding. And that would be those collisions, if you can imagine, two galaxies coming together would push a lot more material into that black hole. That's what actually was feeding it and giving it an energy source for the quasar. 
So whereas now you might get a galaxy collision and you might wait a few billion years before it happens again, back in the early history of the universe it was collision and then collision and then collision. So the galaxy didn't have time to recover from one collision before it was colliding again. So finishing up, uh, this section, this chapter, uh, we have that active galaxies, the source of energy has to be a supermassive black hole. Unless we can come up with something completely more exotic that can explain how you're producing that amount of energy from that small of a space. It must be a supermassive black hole. We can infer it by the amount of energy being produced from a small area. We can look at the motions of stars. But it all comes down to you've got to be able to produce significant amounts of energy, much more than a star can possibly do, many, many times what a star can do from a very, very small area. And when we study quasars, we learn about the early history of the universe because that's when they were out there. And they are so bright that we can see them over those tremendous distances. So even though they were so far away, we can still see, we can still see them because they're so bright. They give us kind of that study, that look into the early universe. Alrighty, so chapter 27, that finishes up what we need for the exam. Questions? All right, we will go ahead to 28 then. And I should have put these slides up. The only one I think I don't have up right now is 29, which I'm just finishing. So uh, we'll go ahead and start with these when we're going to look at galaxy evolution. How do galaxies change? So we just finished up, just finished talking about how galaxies collide, how that feeds the black hole. But what does that do to the overall galaxy? How do galaxies change over time? So galaxies, we're going to see just by the title, they evolve, they change, they can change their shape, and they can merge together. They can cannibalize each other. So galaxies will slowly grow over time as well. So one of the things that we can look at when we look at galaxies is we're observing distant galaxies is, again, this, we think we talked about this when we talked about stars. We can't look at, we can sit there and look at one galaxy all we want for our whole career and it's not going to change. You know, in a 50 year career studying a galaxy, it's not going to change anything. It's going to look exactly the same at the start as it did at the end. So just like stars, one star is not likely to change over the course of a human lifetime. So we have to look at all sorts of galaxies and all sorts of galaxies at different times. That's how we studied stars. We said, well, we could look at stars at all stages of life. Stars that are forming, stars that are going through their lives, stars that are evolving, stars that are dying, and you could put the picture together. Well, galaxies, we can do something similar. Because of the way light travels, that means that we can see things out in the distance at different times. We can see galaxies as they looked when they were very young. We can see galaxies as they looked billion, several billion years ago, tens of billions of years, ten billion years ago, or billions of years ago, or as they look today for the closest ones, or very close to today. So when we look at a galaxy that's 12 billion light years away, we see it when the galaxy was about 2 billion years old, actually a little bit less than that. And that allows us to study how galaxies change over time because we can now see what were galaxies look like right after the universe formed. 
How did they look compared to how the galaxies we look at that are relatively close to us? Maybe only tens or hundreds of millions of light years. Yes, we're still seeing those as they were millions or even hundreds of millions of years ago. But that's recent compared to looking at them billions of years ago. Galaxies, like stars, don't change over, for the most part, a star like the sun won't change over millions or even a billion or two years. Galaxies don't change significantly in general over those kind of times either. So when we look at these galaxies, and this is actually an image, uh, this is the Hubble Deep Field. And what they did was they took the Hubble Space Telescope and pointed it out at an empty part of the sky where nothing, you really hadn't seen anything, no star, no bright stars, nothing else there. And you just pointed it there. And every time you had a little bit of spare time on the telescope, well, we got a half hour here, we pointed. It was out in the direction of the Big Dipper. But it's a small, it's not the Big Dipper, it's a small, small little section of the Big Dipper. And after you did that for, and exposed it for a long period of time, over a while, you ended up seeing all these galaxies. With a couple of exceptions, everything you see in here is a galaxy. There's a couple stars, you can see them, the little uh, diffraction spikes going through them, little cross signs going through them, there's one there, one there, but you can count the, you can count the number of stars. You can't count the number of galaxies there. So we can actually look at those galaxies and we can see them, and as we look out here, we're looking far away from anything. We're seeing galaxies at great distances. Some of these may be relatively nearby smaller galaxies. Some of them may be very, very distant galaxies. And the way we can study that is by looking at their spectra. We can look, first of all, at the colors, because you can't always get a spectrum. But you can look at the colors. So blue galaxies, if you see a bluer galaxy, something in this here, here, that have a little bit of a bluish or white tint to them, they must have had recent formation of stars. It's the only way you can get a blue color is when there's hot young stars there. Anything that looks red in there has not had star formation for a long time. So that means that even looking back many billions of years, there are lots of galaxies like these red ones here. There's a few right in the middle section there that have not had new star formation in a long, long time. We also know that the stars formed very quickly and formed heavy elements very early on. We know, as we'll see in the next chapter, that they couldn't have formed in the Big Bang. So we only formed hydrogen, helium, and maybe a little bit of lithium in the Big Bang. That was it. But we start to see, even in these most distant galaxies, we see lines, signs of heavier elements. So they must have formed very early on in that first billion years of the history of the universe. There must have been a lot of stars forming, a lot of supernovae going off, because when those first stars started, they didn't have any carbon. They didn't have any silicon. They didn't have any iron. Those could not have formed in the Big Bang. But they could have, they could have formed in stars later on and then been expelled back out. So it must have been you know, a very rapid pace of star formation in that very first billion years in order to see that uh, those heavy elements, anything other than hydrogen or helium, there. So how do these galaxies change? Well, it's quite different than stars. Right? Stellar evolution, we went through a nice pattern, how they used up their fuel, and then they go through their various stages of life. Well, the stars within a galaxy do the same thing, but what were the early galaxies like? We can see them. 
and we find that they do not look like the nearby galaxies. When we look at galaxies today, they look very different. The ones that we see in the distant in the early universe were smaller and bluer on average than the ones very, very early. They were also more chaotically shaped. So we didn't see. We looked previously. The nice big spiral galaxies with pretty spiral arms or nice smooth elliptical galaxies. That's not what we see when we look back at the earliest galaxies. They tend to look very irregular in shape and very blue, meaning that they've got lots of star formation going on. So as we pick out the ones that are the most distant in here and start to study those, we, that's what we're finding. Again, very small, so not as big as the galaxies we see today, and much bluer. So we don't see like a giant elliptical galaxy that we look at today. That didn't exist early on in the very early history of the universe. There were no, there were no giant ellipticals. There weren't any giant spirals. The spirals were all distorted. And that might give you the idea that there's a lot of collisions going on. So instead of seeing just nice smooth spirals, they're all distorted. And you get things like this where, yeah, there might be two spiral galaxies. They're all very blue, uh, tend to be very blue objects. But they're all been distorted by these collisions. So the spirals that we would normally see didn't exist. And what we find is that the mergers and collisions of galaxies is the primary way galaxies evolve and change. So not like a star. We can look at one star and it goes through all the stages of its life. The evolution of a galaxy is not dependent just on itself. A galaxy would evolve. It would slowly go through its gas and dust and do change things. But it's the, the evolution of a galaxy is dominated by collisions with other galaxies. So you go through stages like this. You know What kind of galaxy is that? That doesn't look like anything that we talked about except maybe irregular. Here again, all sorts of distorted shapes. So galaxies collide because they're close together compared to their size. You could fit about 25 galaxies between us and Andromeda. I haven't calculated it, but I can imagine how many billions upon billions of suns you could line up between the sun and, and um, Alpha Centauri. How many billions and billions and billions of them you could just line up there before you'd actually get out four light years. It's not going to be 25. 25 won't get you out of the inner part of the solar system. So what that means is that the galaxies are relatively close to, I mean, are relatively close together, closely spaced. And you can kind of imagine this. Is think of the galaxies as beach balls. If you took 10 big beach balls and got them bouncing around in this room really well, they'd be banging into each other. Right? They'd be crashing into you, crashing into me, crashing into the walls, but they'd be pounding into each other. If we took instead 10 little BBs, and bounce them around. And you can imagine, no, no, don't imagine that we, they don't stop. They just bounce around. They're not going to hit each other. They might, rarely. And BBs would be overestimating the star, <laughs> size of a star. But they're not likely to bounce together. They're going to be moving around. So when we say stars don't collide, they do. There are rare occasions where stars will collide. But not in areas of the galaxy like ours. They're just too far apart. In fact, two galaxies, when they collide, the stars will just kind of whoosh through each other, right, go right past each other. I mean, you could think, you could fit millions upon millions of stars between us and the nearest star. 
So two galaxies collide, you could have several stars go right between us and, and Alpha Centauri without doing anything, without actually colliding. You'd have to have it lined up perfectly for it to be able to collide. So the galaxies are very large, the stars are very small compared to the distances. And we see, as I've given you a bunch of examples here, lots of galactic collisions. About 5% of the galaxies now, but a lot more later on. So what happens when these galaxies collide? There's another example of a couple of colliding galaxies here. It's not, when I say collision, right, we think car crash or something, you know, smash, things crash together and it's done. Galaxy collisions are very slow, take hundreds of millions of years, remember how big they are, and they don't really collide together. The individual stars don't collide. Gas clouds might. Gas clouds are bigger, they're closer to the beach balls thing within a galaxy. They're big, they may bounce together, compress. That will enhance star formation, that's why we tend to see a lot of blue in colliding galaxies. Um, and that gives us one of the things that we call a starburst galaxy, one of the types of active galaxies that we see. We can also get streams of material expelled. So when the Milky Way and Andromeda collide in three, four billion years, the Sun is really unlikely to collide with another star in Andromeda. Could happen, I can't say it would not happen, but the odds of any individual star colliding with another star in that situation are very small. However, that does not mean we would not be thrown out of the galaxy into one of these tidal streams of material. The gravitational fields do interact, so the gravity of Andromeda would throw stars out of our galaxy, our galaxy's gravity would throw stars out of Andromeda, and in the long run they'd eventually, first of all they'd look very distorted, something like this, and then eventually they would just settle down to a single galaxy. So. Again, but that may take hundreds of millions of years, so it's not a quick crash where the galaxies collide together. They may go, they may pass through each other, and they may collide again, and it may take a few times for them to settle down. And then eventually there'll just be one larger galaxy where there used to be two. And that's how we believe galaxies have grown over time is through collisions. Because when we look back at time we see lots of small galaxies and Lots of, lots of small, small blue galaxies. They were all a lot smaller. We don't see any of the big galaxies that we see today. We also have, uh, we can have mergers. We can also have cannibalism, where galaxies consume each other. Generally, when we talk about mergers, that's when there's two big galaxies or two galaxies of similar size colliding. Cannibalism would be when a big galaxy takes in a smaller size galaxy. So we can have, this, is an, this would be an example of a merger that's going on. It's a really strange galaxy in that there's an elliptical galaxy here, but there's also this big thick dust lane going through it, which an elliptical galaxy should not have. And what we understand it as now is this is actually an elliptical galaxy and a spiral galaxy in collision. So there's two galaxies actually colliding there. And that would be an example that they would eventually merge, form lots of stars, but if you came back in a few hundred million years, you'd just see the elliptical galaxy would have settled down. And you'd just have the elliptical galaxy again, be a little bit bigger than it was. And some of the evidence that we see for this is that when we look at the centers of many of these galaxies, they have multiple nuclei, multiple black holes at the center. So sometimes the galaxies have merged together, but the black holes haven't yet. 
So they may be orbiting each other slowly in a decaying orbit and eventually they'll coalesce into one much bigger black hole. But relatively quickly after that we just see the two black holes orbiting around each other, sometimes three or four or five, where galaxies have picked up a lot more material, a lot more galaxies. So larger galaxies will cannibalize the smaller galaxies. Our Milky Way is doing this right now with some of the small galaxies that orbit it. Uh, I think it's the Sagittarius dwarf is being pulled into the, pulled into the galaxy and will eventually just be part of our galaxy. We see some of the tidal streams around our galaxy from other galaxies that have been consumed by the Milky Way before, but will also merge when you get larger galaxies. That's what would happen with our galaxy and Andromeda in the future. So what is the timeline of these? Again, the collisions are very rare today, um, but they were much more common in the past. It's about 5% of galaxies today relatively nearby galaxies that are seen to be colliding. But when we look at distant galaxies, and these are some of the very distant galaxies looking way off and Hubble image of very distant galaxies, you sometimes see two, sometimes you can see even more, two or three galaxies. The galaxy collisions were one on top of the other. So the galaxies never had time to settle down. After they collided, they didn't have time to settle down, relax, get their new shape before there, something else was colliding with them. And this allowed the galaxies to build up from things that weren't much bigger than big clusters of stars to the gigantic galaxies that we see today. Through mergers, through cannibalism, actually caused those galaxies to grow over time. Now last time, we've just last time, just previously we were finishing up talking about active galaxies. And how does that tie into this? Well those collisions as I mentioned before, can feed that black hole. If you give that black hole some food, it's going to produce some energy. It's going to become an active galactic nucleus. The black hole is there regardless, but when you start feeding things into it, stars, clusters of um, gas clouds, then it will become active and it will give off much more energy. Remember that quasars and active galaxies were much more common in the early universe when collisions were common. So when there were lots of collisions, throwing lots of material into the center of the galaxy, into the centers of those galaxies, that's when we saw all the quasars. And it may also have some impact on the star formation when you form the core and the jets. That material, that energy going out, can disrupt the star formation. So it may be able to help with formation, with the way the stars are actually forming and the rate at which the stars are forming. So finishing up this section, um, galaxy evolution. How do galaxies change? Two big things and it's, they're, they're, they're similar, mergers or cannibalism. And it, one just refers to similar sized galaxies, the other refers to big galaxies uh, absorbing uh, smaller galaxies. Um, they take all the galaxy collisions take a long time to occur and those individual stars don't actually collide together. And then finally, the collisions were much more common in the early history of the universe and they're relatively rare today. All right, questions? All right, let me see if I can go through a little bit more and then we'll break and I'll look on this. But what I want to look at is some of kind of how the galaxies are distributed in space. So we're looking at galaxies. We're starting to delve into what we call cosmology. 
which is really the subject of the next chapter, which is how the universe formed and evolved. So here we want to start looking at how the galaxies group themselves together. So how are galaxies distributed in space? Are they sitting there all by themselves? Are they just random galaxies scattered around? Are they groups? Are they large or small? How are they grouped together? And one of the things that we use is what we call the cosmological principle. Appears to be true, but it's accepted as true. It's not something that we can prove, but we can make measurements, and it's what allows us to study the universe. When Hubble looked at this, this is Edwin Hubble, not the Space Telescope, um, he counted approximately num the same number of galaxies in each direction. And that led to the idea that the universe had two properties. It was isotropic and homogeneous. I define them down below. Isotropic pretty much means that any large volume of space looks essentially the same. Large, large volumes. We're talking, you know, many millions of light years. Because obviously, every small volume of the space does not look the same. You could pick a small area and have a star in it, or you could have something nearby that had nothing in it. So you, you have to average it out over very, very large scales, hundreds of millions of light years. And when you do that, you count each big block, and they'd have all roughly the same number of galaxies when you look on the very largest scales. So when I say it's isotropic, obviously on small scales it isn't. Right? Even the Earth, you could pick a little cubic centimeter of air, which has so much matter. You could pick a cubic centimeter of desk or floor or Earth, which would have different mass. So it would be different, but on the largest scales overall, it looks essentially the same. And homogeneous just means it looks the same in all directions. It doesn't matter whether I look there or whether I look there, I count roughly the same number of galaxies. So the fact that this is uniform, that the universe is so uniform like this, is what allows us to study the universe and make some, uh, make some uh, no, explanations, give up some explanations about how the universe worked. So when we look at groupings, let's start off nearby. We have our local group. Here is our group of galaxies, which is called the local group. Uh, Milky Way is right there. And then we see all of these other uh, galaxies around it. We kind of put us at the center. That doesn't mean we're, we're not at the center of the local group. Um, we can certainly see galaxies there, but, um, but we're not necessarily at a center of anything. In fact, you can see there seem to be a lot more galaxies over to this side than to that side of us. So we're just kind of centered in it you know, because we're the ones doing that. When we look at this, it contains over 50 galaxies. I don't give an exact number because we're still, count we're still finding new ones. It's weird that we're finding new galaxies so close to us. Some of these galaxies are so small and faint that you can't see them. You couldn't see them directly. They wouldn't look like a nice galaxy like any of the images that I've shown you. But you can count and you can find out that there are these very diffuse galaxies that they are finding. And that's what these faint galaxies are still being found by automated surveys. So have the telescope observing areas of the sky and you count the star. You can actually figure out that, yes, there's a density of stars that are at the same distance from us. And there's actually a small faint galaxy there. So it's 50 plus. Um, we're not finding like tens and hundreds of them, but every once in a while we will find another new one. Some of them are also more distant and faint, so they're harder to find in the first place. So there's a couple here. There's our Milky Way. Uh, there's three large spirals. Milky Way and Andromeda are two of them. And then there's what's called the Triangulum Galaxy is the third. 
So there's three big spiral galaxies, and then a lot of dwarf ellipticals, no big elliptical galaxies in our group, and a lot of small irregular galaxies. So most of these around here, except for the three in yellow, which are the spirals, are either uh, dwarf ellipticals or irregular, so much smaller galaxies. And they're the kinds that are being consumed by the larger galaxies. So there were probably a lot more of them in the past. Now that's a small cluster. If we look at the center of a larger cluster, we tend to see more elliptical galaxies. So up here, we see a lot of elliptical galaxies. This is the Virgo cluster. And the giant elliptical galaxies dominate. Our, ga- our cluster had about 50 galaxies, plus or minus, a couple. This one has thousands. So thousands of galaxies. It's very close. It's the largest big cluster of galaxies. We're actually on the very edge of it. And it's about 50 million light years away in general. So when we look at that one, we see a lot more elliptical galaxies. When we look at an even larger cluster, the Coma Cluster, again, when you look at the central portion, in here, elliptical, elliptical, ellipticals, all bunch of elliptical galaxies here, very red, and then you have one spiral kind of sitting out there. Mostly are elliptical galaxies. So when you look at the very large clusters, again, they're dominated by the elliptical galaxies. This one contains tens of thousands of galaxies compared to just thousands for the Virgo cluster. So the clusters get very big. This one's only 250 million light years away. And I know, that's the light left us 250 million years ago, but it's relatively close compared to when we start talking about distant galaxies that are 10 billion light years away, which would be you know, 40 times that distance. Now within the clusters, you have the social galaxies and the shy or antisocial galaxies. Uh, The elliptical galaxies tend to be the social ones. They cluster at the center. So they're found in the crowded centers of clusters. When you look at the shy little spiral galaxies, they kind of hang on the outskirts of them. Or they're in small groupings like our local group. So you don't see a big spiral galaxy generally at the center of these clusters. Why we believe is that through collisions. If you're at the center of this cluster, galaxies are more tightly packed. You're going to have a lot more collisions. You're going to strip out all that gas. You're going to turn it all into stars. And then there won't be any spiral galaxies left. You'll have had enough collisions go on that you would have eliminated spiral galaxies. So the ones that survive are on the outskirts where collisions are not very common or in smaller clusters, like our local group. Of course, our local group will have a good size elliptical in about four or five billion years once the Milky Way and Andromeda collide. All right. Um, gravitational lensing. Let me just see how much. Let me just do these two. I think I'm going to stop after these two and then we'll pick up here next week. Uh, gravitational lensing. This is something that was predicted by general relativity. The eclipse, remember, remember the eclipse uh, we looked at for. That made the, where Einstein made the prediction that light would bend coming near the sun. Well, any mass of objects will bend light. So mass bends space and time and deviates the light paths. So what it means is that when we look at, here's Earth, here's a galaxy, and here's some distant object right behind it, some of that light goes up and gets bent. It's more mass than the sun. It really gets bent. And we see one image of the galaxy up here. And we see some other light from the galaxy that was heading out this direction get bent. And we see it come this way. So we'll see the foreground galaxy here. 
and we'll see an image here and an image here. And they're usually very distorted as well because they've come through this gravitational lens. Now that means that we can see multiple images. Sometimes you can get just two, sometimes you can get more. Ideally, if you line things up perfect and you have just a very large mass, like a supermassive black hole, and you line something up perfectly with it, you'd get a ring. You'd actually get the galaxy would appear as a ring around the massive object. We've never found anything like that. There's some partial rings and arcs, but never. The, but that's if you have to have everything lined up exactly perfect. So those distant galaxy images become distorted as they go through, as they come through. So when we look at the light, this is looking at the light from a galaxy. What if we looked at a cluster? Well, this is now a cluster of galaxies, but you still have a distant galaxy behind it. Its light is passing through the combined gravitational field of all of these objects. And marked with the circles here, there are some distorted arcs. So you can see how this galaxy is all stretched out. That's not due to a collision, that's due to its lensing. This galaxy really isn't there, it's probably straight behind these. There's another arc over here and another one here and here. Those are all different images of that same galaxy. How can we tell? Well, if we take a spectrum of it, the spectra will look the same. So we can tell what they're, what they're like. Now that also tells us something. The amount of lensing also tells us about the dark matter. And we're going to come back. We've talked a little bit about dark matter. I'll talk about it a little bit more in the next chapter as well. Uh, but the dark matter is also something that affects this. So the amount of dark matter here tells us how much the lensing is. And we can use the lensing, how things are bent, to then determine how much dark matter there must be to account for what we see. So I'm going to stop there. That's about halfway through this chapter. And then next time we'll finish up this chapter and chapter 29, which is on, which is on cosmology. And then all we have left is chapter 30, which is life in the universe, to finish up. So we should be in pretty good shape for next week. Hopefully we can finish most of that up on uh, Tuesday. Questions first? So I wanted to leave a little bit of time here. I'm going to